Captain, we have them. We've established Transporter Lock, the Star Trek Discovery podcast. Join Ken and Sabriel each week as they explore strange new episodes, seek out new plots and new characters, and boldly go where no podcast has gone before. Hello and welcome to Transporter Lock, episode number 37 for Star Trek Discovery Season 2, Episode 11, Perpetual Infinity and Beyond. I'm your co-host Ken Gagney and joining me today is Captain Sabriel and Ken, we are in your 10 forward, your lounge, your horse bar. My quarters, yes. Hello, welcome. We are actually <laughs> recording Transporter Lock in the same place. Weird, I haven't done very many... Like, same microphone. Neither have I. I'm sure our listeners will notice the difference in audio quality. <laughs> Sorry. Oops. <laughs> We're doing our best, so thank you for listening. So this week, Perpetual Infinity. Shall we continue our tradition with a brief TLDR? Yeah, but first there was another first. We got to actually watch Star Trek Discovery together. So that was cool. That's right. We were in the same room watching Star Trek on the same TV. We have never watched... Any Star Trek TV, any episode, any movie, anything together. It's so exciting that you came all the way from Fargo, North Dakota just for this one episode. Just for this and not anything else, like a big gaming convention. Or go to Fun Spot. No, nothing else at all. Just this. (laughs) It's a two-hour trip. That's right. Gotta get out of here right away. And the next episode is on Thursday, so you need to come back. Yeah, yeah. It's going to get expensive real quick. I didn't think this plan through. Let's alternate. I'll go back to Fargo with you today. (laughs) Sounds sounds good. And then next week, we'll both come back here. Yeah. In short, what happened this week on the episode? In short, on Perpetual Infinity, let's see if I can summarize this, because there were always a lot of things going on with Star Trek. There were two main things I want to focus on. One was that Dr. Burnham, Michael's mother, is the Red Angel and is trapped in the stasis field with her suit. And they quiz her about the future, and she basically says, you need to destroy the sphere data so that control can never get their hands on it. They try to destroy it, and it will not allow itself to be destroyed. It uses cryptography and algorithms and the like to protect itself. So they decide, let's upload it into the suit and send it into the future so that control can't have it. I don't know if the data can only be moved and not copied or copied but not moved, but we'll discuss that soon. The other thing is that they could not keep Dr. Burnham in the present and send just the suit into the future. They found a way to do it using the dark matter crystals, but that sort of went awry. The other thing is that Control, as we theorized last week, did in fact infect Captain Leland of Section 31, and he is now the AI's proxy. He is being controlled by the robots, and he set up Ash Tyler and Captain Georgiou to copy the sphere data into section 31's computers that he can achieve true sentience and wipe out all sentient life in the universe. Both Tyler and Georgiou eventually figured this out, but a little bit too late because Leland got away with 52% of the sphere data, destroyed the time crystal in the red angel suit and sent both the suit and Dr. Burnham back to the future where they can't time travel anymore. The end. That's it. That's it for Star Trek. Whew. That was actually a longer TLDR than I expected. Yeah, but it worked out well. It covered most of the bases there. Great. So what would you like to talk about this week? There are two things I really want to focus on, which are Leland and Dr. Burnham. But what aspects of those or what other features really struck your interest, Sabriel? Yeah, most of my little excitement from this episode was a little bit of blurbs and whatnot. So let's just focus on a big topic first, and I can cover that later. Uh, Dr. Burnham seems like a good place to start. 
Yeah, so this is Michael's mother, who we thought was dead, but we never actually saw her die. And it turns out that when the Klingons attacked their moon base, or whatever it was, you know, 20-plus years ago, she escaped in the Red Angel suit that Section 31 was developing. Yeah, I had the traditional Star Trek trope of, if you don't see them die... <laughs> Although Leland said that he saw the body. Yeah, well, Control Leland said that. Right, that's true. So maybe we don't know what the truth is. Mm -hmm. And we also got to see in that little clip Klingons in their old gold uniforms from TOS. We saw Klingons in this episode? Yeah, there was a quick little shot of them storming into the base, you're, shooting their disruptors. You're right. They fired at the Red Angel suit. We saw that from Dr. Burma's perspective in her video logs that she maintained. And you're right. I forgot about that. Uh -huh. We also found that Dr. Burnham has done over 800 mission logs. We, I'm assuming that each mission log is a jump that might not be the case but she's been doing this for a long time she's significantly older than when she made her first jump in that suit mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know she's like quantum leap man she's like uh scott bacula <laughs> trying to write what went once went wrong yeah and it's strange that for some reason every time she goes into the past the suit yanks her back into the future she initially jumped to when she escaped the klingons which is 950 years in the future that is now permanently her home base. I don't know why the Red Angel suit locked on to that era. Yeah, I don't know if we have an answer to that yet. I think it's one of the mysteries that we're going to get soon. When the when she did the jump and she looked down at her thing and it said plus 950, my brain went, <gasps> that's roughly the era that Calypso, the short trek that happened over the late summer, early autumn, took, pl er, took place. That's right. And we'll be talking about that in conjunction with Control. What occurred to me was that this is a... A lot like the Super Nintendo game Chrono Trigger. Because in that game, they were originally just trying to escape getting caught by the local authorities. And they accidentally leapt far into the future and found that it was a wasteland destroyed by Lavos. That was not what they were looking for. They weren't trying to find out what happens in the future. Is Lavos a threat? They were just stumbling into it. Same thing with her. She was just trying to escape the Klingons. And she finds out when she lands 950 years in the future, there's no sentient life anywhere. Yeah. And that became her new mission. She was also trying to just jump back a little bit, 10 minutes, to warn them of the Klingon coming, Klingons coming. Oh, was that her initial target? Uh -huh, uh -huh. I missed that. I wonder what went wrong. I wonder if there's some greater force at work here pulling her into the future. Because we also saw Captain Pike ask her, what's up with the seven signals in the sky? And she said she knew nothing about it. Yeah, which is very curious. Now, do we, does this mean we just don't know? It's another attempt by her in the future to do this? Is it a some yet another entity out there? We just don't know enough what we don't know here. Do you think she was telling the truth about not knowing about the signals? I think it's plausible she's telling the truth. She hadn't lied about anything that we know of up to this point. And so I just, um, yeah, it's plausible that she, she's telling the truth. I like your theory that maybe it's a future her, because that hadn't really occurred to me. But it's true, when you're time traveling, the past you're trying to change might have already been changed by the future whoa <laughs> mind-blowing when was this this is now <laughs> when will then be now soon what else about dr burnham uh she's really jaded <laughs> after all this she's talking to mike in a very emotional moment michael comes down and is trying to see her mother for the first time after thinking she was dead all this time and her mother is very standoffish and cold and her mother's just like i've Basically, like, I've tried this so many times, I've seen you die hundreds of times, and I just have to just Basically, she has to distance herself from the situation. She eventually turns around by the end of the episode, but yeah. 
don't know, that'd be rough for Michael. She says to Captain Pike that you're all ghosts of me. And it reminds me of Linda Hamilton's character in Terminator 2 when she says to the doctor, you're all dead to me. Because she knows the future. She knows that the nuclear holocaust kills everybody. So what's the point of being nice to somebody or even trying to save their lives when it's so short term, when you know the end is inevitable? Yeah, yeah. There was also a huge gut punch of a moment. Pike comes down to talk to her and she's like, I've seen your future and you wouldn't like it. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm like, beep, beep. <laughs> you know what? To be honest, when she said that, I forgot that we know Pike's future. Mm-hmm. That is the cage and the menagerie. And oof, that's rough. But he was very Christopher Pike and said, we're not here to talk about me. That's right. I liked that. Yeah, you're, you are right about also Dr. Burnham coming around in the end because she says to her daughter Michael at the very end, like, I was there when you graduated from high school. I was there when you read Alice in Wonderland to yourself. And I assume she doesn't mean corporeally. Like, she didn't pop into the past in her Red Angel suit to watch all these events. But somehow she was able to maybe scry them. Maybe she has in her suit some sort of a window into the past where she can watch it without being yeah, it's present. Al- it's also possible that she could see old logs somehow. I don't know. Uh, but some way, because she physically couldn't have been there. Otherwise, everyone would have known. Right. I mean, it's hard to be incognito when you're in a giant Section 31 suit. Yeah. Or and, whatever it is. And people would have noticed the gravitational disruptions in her appearing in the future or the past or whatever. Hmm. But ultimately, where is my red stuff? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we're going to see red matter in this ep- in this show. No, 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 no. Uh, the Pike line when they get first get to the red uh, the red signals. He's like, "Where's the red stuff? I was promised the red stuff." Oh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> or when, whatever he said. When signal. Pike first went to the Hiawatha. That's right. <laughs> Speaking of the Hiawatha, where are Jet? Where or where is Jet? And Admiral Cornwell. <laughs> yeah, there is a theory online about their appearance. Oh, yeah, yeah. I wrote it down. Um, or maybe I didn't. Um, <laughs> they're just off camera working on the next plot point or how to save a season. <laughs> That's right. They, their appearances and disappearances are very convenient and very unpredictable. I mean, I loved the two episodes that Jet was in, but we haven't seen her since. Yeah. And she has to be important for some reason because... Why does the Red Angel show up where the pulses are if the Red Angel has nothing to do with the pulses? Does, is this, is there some entity trying to get Discovery to show up where the Red Angel will? But that doesn't even make sense because the Red Angel didn't show up at the Kelpian homeworld until after Discovery had already forced the evolution of everybody. And I'm still wondering what Spock has to do with all this. We learned that his combination of logic and emotion and his dyslexia allowed him to interpret or receive the temporal transmissions from the Red Angel. And that's what made him unique. He was trying to figure that out. But the fact that he is Michael Burnham's adopted brother can't be a coincidence. Yeah, and why is he still seeing these spots in the sky or when he was little? Yeah, where did he get this information from if it's not the Red Angel? It's very confusing. We have three episodes left and they're still doing the... We're just giving you barely enough to not know what's going on. Right. Yeah, this is season two, episode 11, and there are 14 episodes in this season. And we don't know where we're going to go from here. There's still a lot of questions to be answered. Will we see Dr. Burnham again? Will we see another Red Pulse? I think we might soon. But oh, there are so many questions. And time travel gives me a headache. <laughs> I promised myself when I was captain I would never get involved. <laughs> and yet here we are. Uh, we also learned a little bit more about the Elysium survivors from World War III out on New Eden. Yeah. Um, Dr. Burnham... 
teleported them there in the past. In one of her logs, she made mention that that the humans she pulled are thriving, and uh, in the future, and so that's cool. And she mentions, and she makes mention that uh, because the planet had no historical um, known pre-existing technology, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's why the future control has not found them yet. Yeah, she said how she created a home base for herself on a class M planet 50,000 light years away. And then she said, Elysium, as the survivors call my planet. And I missed that connection the first time I watched this episode. But apparently her home planet is the same one that she transported those survivors to. And she was able to pull them out of World War III without changing the past because they would have died anyway. Kind of like in the movie Millennium, where they were pulling fatalities off a plane crash just before it crashed so that they could use the bodies in the future. Nobody would miss them because they were going to die anyway. It, it's still a little confusing to me that Pike gave New Eden that battery. That is technology. And you would think that that might disrupt their future because now Control might have something that they can lock onto and find. It might now. And it's something we can see in the next few episodes. And also 950 <clears throat> years and they don't have any technology? Uh-huh. We don't know that. We just we don't know what level. It's just they're thriving is all we know. We don't know if it's technology enough that control would notice it. Is it technology that control would pick up on? We don't know what. Yeah, we don't know. Maybe it does. Maybe control no longer does scans of the universe since it's like, well, we did our thing that we're trying to do. Right. I would think that control would be searching for life forms or life signs as opposed to technology, but. For some reason, 50,000 light years away seems to be a safe zone. So it's not true that all sentient life in the universe mm-hmm. has been destroyed. It may think it is. Oh, if, if you don't catch the why she beamed or brought those people to the planet, she was just doing an experiment to see if control could find them. So she did an experiment with the dead people. Right. So she found out that she could change the future. Mm-hmm. The future being her future relative to when she first made her leap in the Red Angel suit. So she's like, wow, this... Galaxy had no sentient life. Now it does. And that's because of a change I made in a jump. So if the future can be changed, maybe the past can as well. We haven't seen evidence of that yet, but there's still plenty of time in this episode. Time is a cruel mistress. Time is a river, and it sweeps (laughs) us all away eventually. Time is not fragile. It is relentless. I like that little rant that she had about how people think time is... You know, this limited, precious thing. Like, no, it is savage. And it comes for us all. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it was Soren, I think, had a similar view in, in uh, Star Trek Generations. <laughs> and he was a villain. Oh, yeah. And Anorax in Voyager, he had a rough relationship with time as well. Was that from A Year of Hell? Yeah. Yep. Red from that 70s show. <laughs> Also, the villain from the first Robocop movie. Yeah. That, that's how I, I've never saw the 70s show, so that's how I tend to oh, think of him. I was just about to quote him from Robocop, but I should not do it, because I don't think he says a clean thing. <laughs> and this is a work-friendly podcast, so share it with all your coworkers, play it loud enough for all your people mates to listen to. I'm sure they'll appreciate it. Anything else about this time-traveling mother? Oh, she has a great scene with Giorgio, or, or something I said. Su- Suggested was likely true is true, and Doctor Burnham sees it. Mira Giorgio cares about Prime Michael a lot. She's she uh, Doctor Burnham knows, probably based on her knowledge of the past, how much Giorgio cares for Michael, and 
she even says at some point, basically, you would do anything, including sacrifice yourself for her. And Giorgio's like, no, I wouldn't. <laughs> She's like, you'd be surprised at what you can do, Giorgio. For the ones that you love. Mm-hmm. And I know you don't make promises that often, which is why I'm asking you for this one. Take care of her. Yeah, Giorgio sees Dr. Burnham as a rival for Burnham's affections. But it's not true. And Dr. Burnham doesn't see things that way at all. They're like, hey, I need your help to care for our daughter, basically. Mm-hmm. And that was really cool. Yeah. Oh, I I, oh, I love Georgia so much. <laughs> there was also something that you picked up on in their dialogue, which was Mira Georgiou referring to the Prime Universe as the Prime Universe. Yeah. It's like, what? Cool. They, they canonized it now. It's something that fans have been calling... The original timeline that we all know grew up and loved as the Prime Universe. Then there's the Mirror Universe, and then there's the um, they called it. I can't remember now. It's been so long, I forgot what fans were calling it. But it's the Kelvin Universe now. They were calling it a couple of things. That was the Abrams oh, Universe, New Trek, <laughs> also the Handsome Universe because everybody <laughs> is so handsome. That's right, Abrams. Yeah, that's how fans were calling it until CBS, Paramount, whatever, officially said, "No, we call it the Kelvin timeline." Mm-hmm. But it's strange that. I'm guessing that Captain Georgiou is adapting to the majority of people in her universe. She realizes that she's the outlier. But the truth is, why would she think of any universe other than her own as the prime universe? How come we have to be prime, her universe B? How come we can't be universe A? Right. <laughs> like from Futurama, right? Yeah. Or it reminds me of the TV show that's currently airing, The Flash, where there's Earth 1, 2, 3, etc. Who came up with this naming system and who standardized mm-hmm. it? Like, wouldn't every Earth think that they are Earth 1? I am Earth One. No, I am Earth One. You can't be Earth One. <laughs> I saw someone ha- uh, later had a good argument for this, and they said, um, in current day Earth, our Earth, the real Earth, um, the British call the islands the Falcon Islands, but the Argentines say uh, Las Malvinas. If you're in Argentina, you would probably not call it the Falcon Islands. Hmm. So they can call it what they call it. So maybe when Georgiou gets back to her universe, she says, ah, oh, it's good to be back in the prime universe. Or she wouldn't say that at all <laughs> in my universe, she'd probably say. But if she was talking to yeah. other people yeah, in her knows? universe. Who like, knows? Hmm. What else about Georgiou and oh, Burnham? Something about Georgiou's time part in this always makes me wonder what's, how much she knows because she knows the future to a point when the Defiant comes back. So maybe she's already seen how this ends. But maybe she hasn't because time is not, time is fluid. Yeah, if Dr. Burnham is trying to change the past and the future, then which future was in the logs of the USS Defiant from the TOS era that went back in time to Enterprise? Yeah, so maybe now, maybe this will also be the defining point where that changes and she doesn't know as much as she used to. That's right. Yeah, that has sort of been overlooked in this whole series, the fact that the Defiant has those logs. They briefly referenced it in the first season, but not really much since then. It is surprising to me how important the sphere data has become. Because I recently watched the TNG episode, The Nth Degree, where Barclay brings them to a place where they download decades worth of data. Picard says it'll take our scholars decades to unearth and research everything that we've learned. I originally thought the sphere data would be like that, just this fun one-off episode where they get a bunch of data. And it has become the reason why sentient life is wiped out in the entire universe, which is really impressive. I mean... Saru originally didn't want to delete it, but he didn't defy orders either. When Burnham and Pike said to delete it, he tried, and they couldn't. They couldn't even remove just the AI part. But they were able to move it to the Red Angel suit, but Leland somehow intercepted it and copied it. 
We don't know what percentage he needs. We don't know if he also has the 25% that Arium uploaded, because that would be 25 plus 52, assuming no overlap. He has 57% of it now. That's what seems to be in the Star Trek universe. When you copy data, you're you're just moving data. You're not hitting the copy function. Right. (laughs) Right. So we don't know if the Red Angel suit had 100%. It turns out that Dr. Burnham is the one who put the sphere into Discovery's path, because usually the control AI would get the sphere data himself, itself, and now Discovery has it. So they're hoping that she was hoping that they could protect it. So she's been pulling a lot of strings, manipulating things in a good way, but we don't know what else she might be responsible for or what else might be in the sphere data. Why don't they look in the sphere to see if they have an anti-AI countermeasure or something? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There could be something in there that they could find useful. Three episodes to go. Maybe they could use the AI data themselves to build a benevolent AI <laughs> and have it run Discovery 950 years in the future where the Red Angel suit pops back up. Close. <laughs> that would tie into the short track. It, it mostly, I think it's just Discovery's computer evolving itself. Using sphere data? No. You think just given well, that hundred plausible. I can't say yes or no, but something happens where the computer just sitting there for a thousand years and it seems to develop its own intelligence. And it would need to have experiences and outside influences, though. I mean, even the Enterprise D on TNG eventually developed some rudimentary intelligence, but that took it seven seasons to accomplish. And even then, it was nowhere near as sophisticated as Zora. But it did it on its own. Yeah, but it did it based on the adventures and experiences that the ship and its crew subjected it to. If the Discovery was just sitting there by itself with no external input for a thousand years... I don't think it would spontaneously generate AI. We don't know when they parked the ship yet. We don't. No, there's just just unknowns. Um, But I think it's plausible that it just did it on its own. That's me. I don't know. I I learned in grade school that if you, like, take a piece of meat and you cover it up and you put it in the fridge and a week later you open it up and it's filled with maggots, it's not that the meat produced the maggots or generated them. They were already there. You know, I don't think life can come from nothing. I think that includes artificial life. I have some stuff to go on already. And it already, we know it was reading the archives of um, the past where it could watch the movie and things like that. So it had plenty of experiences to draw off of. It could watch Betty Boop? Yeah. <laughs> we'll see about that. Let's talk about the future and AI and control in Leland. Yeah. Oh, my God. So Leland at this point has become control Leland or Leland control or however you want to say. There were some really creepy, gross moments here when he was uh, being basically assimilated. Yeah. Somehow control manipulated him into a chair and strapped him down and had a holographic conversation with him. Apparently, it can imitate Michael Burnham and Saru and Pike, along with all the other admirals we've previously seen. And then he ejected right into the base of his skull. What appear to be nanites. Yeah. And took over Leland. And we don't see Leland, once he's assimilated, struggling. Like, Arium had a very different experience being assimilated. I don't know if that's because she was part robot or whatever, but she was mostly in control of herself. And also, another difference is that she was uh, compromised via a visual signal, whereas Leland was physically assimilated. So that is probably a much more direct interface to his personal body. Yeah, I find the parallels to the Borg very fascinating. I don't think it's intended to be related. I think it's just two technologies, similar technologies developing on their own is what it feels like to me. 
What are some ways in which you see control and the Borg being different? It wants to kill all life. Where the Borg didn't have that as a goal, they wanted to assimilate all life. That's a big primary one right there. Yeah, the Borg wouldn't survive without an organic component. So if they wiped out all sentient life, that would have to include themselves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, that's the primary one. Besides, um, but, you know, I find it possible that maybe Control might be using technology, maybe Section 31 found on the crash Borg sphere to get to its means. So you're talking about on Enterprise? Uh-huh. Was Section 31 in that episode? No, but it's, it, it does exist in that timeline. That's right? true. So it's plausible, but I think a lot of Star Trek Discovery this season is plausible, but we just don't know enough. Right. I'm also considering that when somebody was assimilated by the Borg, they were never able to pass themselves off as human. They always mm-hmm. looked assimilated. Georgiou and Tyler could not tell by looking at Leland that he was assimilated. So this is much more covert. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I also love that. <laughs> I got such a kick out of the point where Giorgio knows something is wrong with Leland because Leland suddenly has a backbone. <laughs> she says, you're very resolute today. And she notices this as being atypical of him. Yeah, yeah. I love that. <laughs> he's not usually that effective a leader. Yeah, he's already... And that's when he's like... Or control Leland. I was like, I saw the dead body of Michael's mother. So this clearly cannot be the actual person. We need to do things in our Section 31 way because we're always morally gray. So this is no big deal if we try to get rid of her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Although we did see Tyler defy orders. For yeah. Once, for once, he had a backbone as well. He was supposed to activate that transmitter that copied the sphere data, and he declined to do so. And he told Leland in no uncertain terms, I'm not going to do this. Is that unclear? So it was nice to see Tyler show his allegiance because that's something that he and Burnham have been fighting over. It's finally, it's nice to see Tyler finally have something interesting to do this season. Yeah. <laughs> Rather than just look pretty uh-huh. or be mopey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Burnham doesn't love me. Yeah, I got a job that's really hard and morally gray. <laughs> <laughs> I believe in the mission though. <laughs> also, sometimes Tyler and Georgiou are not seen eye to eye. They can be somewhat combative with each other. And George, you always likes to say, you know, in my universe, you were this, or in my universe, we do this, and blah, blah, blah. And I saw it point out to me on Reddit that Tyler can always say, in our universe, I ate you. <laughs> yep. <laughs> right. So Tyler is very annoying this season, but we have to remember, he has some pretty gory past. Yeah, he does. Man, when he got stabbed, I was kind of like, oh, finally, we're done with it. Ash Tyler. And then he lived. <laughs> I was impressed that he barely had enough breath in him to make a call that lasted longer than one word. All he got to say to Pike was, Leland. And then he somehow dragged himself to an escape pod yeah, and yeah. got out. Maybe he, there was one right there parked and he just fell back into it. <laughs> it certainly took him a while when he walked into Leland's quarters to find Leland. I mean, look, there are two know, right? halves of the room. Spend five minutes looking to the left and then look to the right. <laughs> a little late now. Where you see Leland like partially opened up or something like that. Like very computer-like. Yeah. It was, we didn't get a direct view, but it was implied uh-huh. that it was rather grotesque. Uh-huh. But man, can Leland take some shots? I mean, he got hit by quite a that few was, people. That was another interesting thing. His suit was regenerating as he was getting shot. Oh, I missed that. I was like, what's going on here? Is this like... That was clearly... A hard light hologram, if it was hologram, which I don't think it was, because it was just resealing up shots to his leather jacket was resealing. What aspect was a hard light hologram? Uh, uh, he's able to hold things and whatever like that in, uh, when he's on the planet. 
I said if it was if that was a hologram and not a real thing. I think it was real. I think it was. Real I don't too. think they have hard light holograms yet. That's what I'm saying. I don't think that's. I don't think it was a hologram or fake. Leland's. I think it was a real one. Right. So how was he regenerating his leather jacket instead of when he's getting shot there? Yeah, we saw him transport down, and then Discovery detected one more transporter signal back to Section Thirty One. Mm-hmm. But he was not able to be put down, no matter how many times he got shot. I loved the martial arts between him and George Yu. The fisticuffs were fantastic. I yeah. love the choreography. You could see that he was learning George's moves as they were fighting. And I was disappointed that she wasn't learning because she just kept swinging and he kept ducking. And I'm like, George Yu, you got to fake him out. You got to go do something new. Sweep the leg. Right. It's not a thing. <laughs> and also adapt. Like, change your face or frequency. They've already adapted to this one. Come on, George Yu, You're smarter than this. What else about Oh, Part of that plan was um, Leland was like, we're going to go steal the sphere data ourselves. So that's why you need to go down there. And he's trying to make sure the mission happens. And <laughs> during that moment, Spock realized what's going on. And he's like, they've got 45%, 46%. Um, come on, come on, say it, say 47. He never did. Because that's like a magic number in Star Trek. Yeah, it is. <laughs> going to Starbase 47. It's 47 light years away. Everything is 47. It was a total tease and they know it. <laughs> Were there 47 people when Amelia Earhart was found? Uh, that was 37. 37. Oh, so the close. The 37th was the name of the episode. Got it. Okay. Hmm. But if you don't know that, if you watch Star Trek, you will often hear references to 47, 4.7, 74, a lot. And that can't be a coincidence. It's not. But uh, Leland, yeah. Um, so now he's running away with the Section 31 ship. And... The Section 31 ship is a little weird. Sometimes it's heavily crewed. Sometimes there's not any crew. <laughs> you never know if there's people on the ship or not because the bridge is empty a lot. I'm also wondering if Control is limited to Leland. It's because obviously Control had some amount of, no pun intended, control over the Section 31 ship itself. And an AI shouldn't be limited to being present in just one place at any given time. Yeah. Um, so Section 31 and... Its ship and its captain are all under the control of control, and they can kill one. Like, even if the torpedo that Discovery launched on the test site had successfully killed Leland, Section 31, the ship, could still disinfect somebody else, like George U. It's, it's in the Star Trek universe. We just don't know if this is the... There's no, there's no copying of data. There's only moving in full chunks. We don't know if control fully moved itself into Leland or not. And as we mentioned, we don't know... If the Red Angel suit had all the data at the end, or yeah. just copied it. Oh, interesting fact. We know that there are 7,000 ships in, St- in the Federation, or Starfleet. Oh, that's right. So Control said that, how I may not be able to control your ships or all its people, but I can control its command structure. And even the people who don't want to help me fulfill my mission will, unwilling, unknowingly. Uh-huh. Reminds me of the Bluegill infestation in Season 1 of TNG. Is that what they called it? Yeah, it was later named the Bluegills. That was the episode Conspiracy, right? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, they came up in Season 8 of Deep Space Nine in the novels. Very cool. Do we want to talk at all about how Michael felt? Because she reviewed a lot of these logs from her mom, and she also had some interactions with her brother Spock. Yeah, Michael had like a really tough moment. I mentioned before, or I think I did. Maybe I thought about it. Michael beamed down to go talk to her mom after not seeing her for so long. And she's having this heartful, yay, mom, I'm so happy to see you. And her mom's like, go away. (laughs) But but it was really hard watching Michael go through this wanting to talk to and see her mom so hard just wanting to touch her the hard moment of um her mom saying no but they did by the end have that heartfelt moment um dr burnham they did have that moment by the end dr burnham uh did 
starts showing her emotion. And, uh, you know, it's rough there. I mean, I remember seeing you had quite a reaction to that when we were watching, whether you realized it or not. Yeah, I, I kind of forgotten about that, but I was thinking what would happen if I saw a parent who I've lost who's suddenly back after all this time. And that would be hard. You know, I remember in DC Comics, there was a character named Our Man, and he was originally from the Justice League of America uh, back in the 40s, and he supposedly died, but it turned out that this other superhero had pulled him out from the moment he died and put him in, in this room that is, exists outside of space-time. And he said, you're going to be in this room for one hour, and then I'm, you're going to be, re- be returned exactly the moment I pulled you from, and you will die. So this is just like an extra hour. And then the same superhero gave our man's son basically a, a switch that allowed him to transport into this room. And basically said, you get one more hour with your dad, and it doesn't have to be continuous. You can go there for five minutes and then leave. And when you come back again, it'll be right when you left the last time. So it all adds up to one hour. It's one continuous hour from your father's perspective. And you get to use this whenever you want. Almost like the DS9 episode, The Visitor, where to Captain Sisko, it was all one continuous uh, moment where he kept leaping into a son's life. But for a son, it could be years apart. And I'm just thinking, like, what if I had one more hour with somebody that I thought I lost? And I knew that's all I had. You know, and then that person was going to go away again. Because Michael knew my mom was going to get sucked back into this wormhole any minute now. She was trying to get her mom to stay. Like, look, we can keep you here. We can send the Red Angel suit away by itself. It doesn't need somebody to protect it. And the mom was like, no, I need to go. This mission is not over. And I can't come home until I see this thing through. And that must have been really hard to realize that there are things more important than your own mom. Yeah, yeah. Oh, glossed over something, too. You reminded me. Control, Elin, destroyed the time crystal. Yeah, we briefly mentioned that in TLDR, that they can't time travel anymore. So... Now, as we mentioned, with time travel, it's not always continuous. We might see Dr. Burnham in the Red Angel suit again, but it'll be a jump that she's already done in her own past. There may be some discontinuity in where these timelines intersect. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see what happens in these next three episodes. Yeah, I mean, I don't know where they can go from here. They need to destroy the sphere data. They need to destroy control. I'm guessing this is not going to be the Borg, because the Borg we know are headquartered in the Delta Quadrant. Mm -hmm. Why would they go there now when they're being founded in the Alpha Quadrant? The only potential connection I can suspect possibly is that Future Probe that came back have some inspiration from the Borg, but I don't think it is the Borg. Mm -hmm. I I don't... Who knows what they'll pull, but doesn't feel like it. And we also saw the Borg on Enterprise send a signal to the Delta Quadrant, Mm -hmm. which wouldn't get there until TNG era. So you could argue that they did that knowing that the Borg don't even exist yet, but that still seems unlikely. But also, I believe it was in the Q episode when they first encountered the Borg that prior to then, supposedly the Borg didn't even know that the humans existed. Although I think maybe they were already scooping up Romulan colonies and examining them. But I think Q or Picard said, we can now count on them coming our way, because now they know we're here. Mm-hmm. Um, the Vadwar in Voyager, the dinosaurs that left our planet and uh-huh. evolved in a different part of the world, mentioned, I think, that the Borg have been around for a very long time, too. Like oh. thousands of years, if not more. I don't remember that. 
So, yeah, that is definitely another strong argument for Leland not being a Borg precursor. But then that's also a very three-dimensional thinking. Right? <laughs> right. Yeah, it's a very different kind of AI, and I don't think it's the same. But imagine if the Borg got the sphere data. Oh, my gosh. Who knows what they would do? <laughs> I don't even want to think about it. It's terrifying. Anything else before we wrap up, Captain? Um, let's see. <laughs> Your computer says no. <laughs> As it goes, eh. Let's see. Well, unfortunately, they're setting up so Ash Tyler's in season three. Or at least not dead yet. Yeah, he's not dead yet. Uh, um, <laughs> let's see. We've got uh, Culber was on temporary active duty. He was in his uniform. He said he'd been reinstated for all of five minutes. And that is consistent with us saying that he does better when he has a job to do. Uh, you know, he looks pretty sharp in medical clothes. I think also just the medical clothes of this era are sharp. Yeah, yeah, very pointy. Uh. <laughs> Let's see, Tilly had a moment saying her favorite law of physics was the, was it second law or third law? I, I think for every action there was an equal and opposite reaction was her second favorite. Yeah, okay, okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I'm surprised that she felt the need to share her first because this was a pretty tense moment with the universe trying to tug back on Dr. Burnham and pull her into the future. When she's nervous is when she says a lot of this stuff. And That's this true. is a very nerve-wracking situation. But remember when she was watching Michael die last week and she didn't even hear Captain Pike's order. He had asked, do you detect any disruption or interference? And Tilly was just locked onto that screen. She was just unable to tear herself away from watching her friend, her roommate, die. Oof. We also saw Spock show a little bit more empathy you know, at the end of the season, at the end of the episode, he put together the chessboard and said, I can't imagine how difficult this is for you. And earlier in the episode, he said, let's you and I together go to Captain Pike and petition for you to see your mom. So it's nice to see them getting closer. And he also had the line like, I love science or something. <laughs> science is great or something like that. <laughs> yeah. 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 That was fun. Um, I mean, he also was like, hey, we've, we've changed the future now because the control only has half the data instead of all the data. And so now that's going to have repercussions in the future where, or what they do now, because now control doesn't have all the data it wants. And so that's cool. So that allows for time to be changed yet again in, in, um, Dr. Burnham's future now. And also if this is similar to the DC 1 million storyline I talked about last week, then they might say, you know, we have 950 years to solve this, but that means that if they set a plan in motion that takes that long to enact, the current Discovery crew will never know if they are successful or not. Mm -hmm. That's rough. But I still have to wonder why Discovery in Calypso was parked, not only in that era, but also in that location. I don't remember. It was, was it a, orbiting a planet? Or, I thought it was a star, I thought. I think it was a star. I mean, maybe. Or Nebula. It may have been set up to look for the Red Angel suit to reappear. I gotta look that up now. I wanna rewatch that start, or short track just a little bit. I'm pretty sure it was a red star. Okay. And what does a red star have to do with anything? Red signals and very, and things like that. Hmm. So you think those red pulses might be a window into the future? Possible. Interesting. And we also saw when the red angel comes through, it seems to create a little red star Uh type thing. Maybe it's just coincidence. Who knows? Are there any coincidences in Star Trek Discovery? Not this season. So now we need to start, stop. Now, from this point on, we need to start realizing that one plot element is a central part of the show and very likely has something to do with the overall mm-hmm. arc. <laughs> yeah, this is one of the few episodes you were not able to watch twice before we record the podcast. Yeah, thank you, Pax. 
<laughs> but I think you and I need to go just go back and rewatch the entire season. Can mm-hmm. we binge that between now and your flight this afternoon? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. That's what, two hours? That's three hours? If that's... we watch it at four times speed, yeah. <laughs> that should be fine. We should be able to comprehend that. All right, well, I think that is it for this episode of Transporter Lock, our first and to date only episode recorded in person. Yeah, so I hope, uh, listeners, that you don't mind the difference in audio quality. Or the editing, because it's only a single track. Yeah. <laughs> if, if I had a more elaborate setup, I'm sure we could achieve higher results, but... Unfortunately, this is not a common setup. No, so I try my best not to over or talk over you. (laughs) Well, I appreciate that. And I the same to you. Until next time. Punch it, Chewy. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes and keep your hailing frequencies open by following us on Twitter at TransporterLock or subscribing to our podcast and email newsletter at TransporterLock.com. The timeline changed. Oh, God, how am I aware of it? Oh, God, am I some kind of really hyper being that can sense time changes? Ah! Okay, bye.